This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I can't believe how long your PhDs go for. I can't it's, either. It's I mad. Either. You're so old by the time that you, <laughs> you finish. Yeah, come to Australia. Just, <laughs> just, just come to your PhD here. It would be fantastic. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we explore graduate programs that grant PhDs in under five years with no money down. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 115. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey, Dan. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. Now, everybody should know that this year you were kind enough to invite me on a camping trip. Yep. For the long weekend, some friends, some mutual friends invited. Everybody's going. A fun family camping trip in the beautiful great outdoors. And planned months ago, I think. Or at least a month ago. Well, yeah. I think it was about six to eight weeks ago we decided we should go on a camping trip, which... Many of us have done before. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I think the original goal was that this would happen in late April, early May, but scheduling difficulties. The first weekend we could settle on was here at the end of May, which seemed fine six weeks ago. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And and my first, when I got that email, I was so excited. I clicked the delete button as fast <laughs> as I possibly could because, as you know, I am the worst outdoor sleeper. I just, I have to have all of the comfort of home. Yeah, you're not a sleep outside in a tent. Nope. I don't like to be person. hot. I don't like the dew to settle. I'm, I'm very, um, it's, it's tough enough for me to sleep in my own house, let alone out in the great outdoors. So anyway, you guys went and I think it was 95 degrees. It, outside. Was, it was really hot. And, and then a thunderstorm rolled Yeah, through. we actually had to, we, we called it quits. I actually decided probably around 2.45 a.m. when it was still 78 degrees outside and i had not yet gone to sleep 99 percent humidity then yeah it said 100 percent humidity 100% actually humidity. on my weather app that i was staring at at 2 45 a.m i said we're not sleeping here another night and you know as insult to injury a random rain shower passed through unannounced and started raining on us and of course we didn't have our, our rain fly on the tent and here's how hot it was dan it was so hot that when it started raining into our tent from the open top my first thought was, wow, that feels good. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great, great camping adventure. Oh, but well, we, had, uh, we had some good times during may, the day. Maybe fun, next uh, year I will just automatically send that, that email to spam. <laughs> but thanks for inviting me. Sounds good, Dan. Well, <laughs> we got something cool today at least. Yeah, one, one thing that, that is refreshing is this beer that we're drinking. Dan, this is a beer that I believe you brought back from some travels you did uh, a month or so ago. I did. I went to Knoxville, Tennessee. Yep, and this is a Tennessee beer. This came from Johnson City, Tennessee. This is the Yeehaw Dunkel from Yeehaw Brewing. I believe, Dan, this is not our first Tennessee beer, but I believe this is our first Dunkel. Why haven't I made the map yet? The beer map. That's a feature I keep requesting. Okay, I'll work on it. So, Dan, let me tell you, since Dunkel, this is our first Dunkel, I wanted to get us on the same page to make sure we knew what a Dunkel was. Please. So Dunkel, like a lot of beer types, has its origins in Germany. And Dunkel is actually a German word. You're the word guy. Do you know, have an idea what Dunkel might mean? I do not. It means dark. 
which stands to reason because when you pour this in my glass, it is a we're not we're not as dark as the um, the stout we had the last other time, but this one is quite dark. I, I, I would call it a, a darker than rusty. What would you call that? Well, yeah, that's right on chocolate colored, right on cue for a typical dunkel. So most dunkels range in color from amber to dark reddish brown. Would you say this is a dark reddish brown? Well, you know, I, I, the word was rusty, rusty when you held yeah. it up, but yes, it's darker than that. Yeah, and they are typically characterized by their smooth malty flavor. So, uh, are you getting a smooth malty flavor, Dan? I am getting a smooth malty flavor, a little burnt sugar, um, maybe a little coffee. Yeah, I would say, while maybe not a sibling. This is a close cousin to a stout or a porter, I would but say. But I think a little lighter on the in the mouthfeel department. There's a lot of flavor in this beer. And one thing that actually surprised me, I was curious what the ABV is of this beer, 5.5%. So middling? Yeah, and typically Dunkles are not known to be uh, super high gravity. They have sort of this sort of mid-range um, alcohol content, but lower than a Doppelbach. Is this style a style you would drink again, or it's not your favorite? Um I think so. I think I would drink this. You know, this is something, and Dan, you've been out to drink beers with me before. I'm a big fan if I go to a brewery that has a large selection of many types of beer. I don't like to commit to the whole pint. Uh, this is a beer I could see myself getting a 10-ounce pour and enjoy for a little while before moving on to something Before else. switching flavors. Yeah, but it's a good mix-up, I think, if I was between an IPA and maybe a Pilsner or something. All right. Well, I'll, I'll take you up on that next time we go out. Speaking of switching to something else... Uh, we have a new Patreon patron this week. We sure do, Dan. Special thanks to Bryce for joining our growing group of Patreon patrons. Thank you, Bryce. Josh, let's also not forget that on June 4th, Promega is hosting a webinar discussing applications of CRISPR-Cas9 mediated gene editing and how you can use it to study protein dynamics in live cells without overexpression. Uh, I know that you are probably not doing a lot of CRISPR work right now, but for our listeners who are, go to promega.com slash hello PhD for more information and a link to register. You know, Dan, I run an educational program for a post-bac program for students who are pre-graduate school. And at the beginning, when they start in June, we learn about some different lab skills and, and different training related to working in the lab. And we're actually doing a session on CRISPR. Oh, that's exciting. Maybe I'll direct them to this webinar. <laughs> then you could just sit in the <laughs> back in and the drink back. coffee. That's right. Perfect. <laughs> All right, Josh. Well, let's get to our main topic. All right, Dan. So last week, we took a walk down memory lane and went into the archives and dug up a discussion we had a few years ago on this idea of a fixed-length five-year PhD. And the feedback was deafening. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, this struck a nerve for a lot of people. It struck a nerve from a lot of people in a lot of different media. I, I was noticing we were getting commentary uh, in our patron Slack channel, on the website, via Twitter, via email. It felt like skywriting was coming next. People really had strong feelings about this one. Which is great. That's what you wanted. That's what I wanted. I have strong feelings. You do. For those who hadn't heard the last episode, we talked about the... The pros, cons, challenges, promises of having a PhD that ends in just five years on a schedule. And, you know, one thing, Dan, I was hoping to accomplish from this, besides uh, getting a conversation going, was I was really eager to learn if there actually are PhD programs out there doing this. Now, we knew already about the, these Australian programs from 
our conversation with Talia we'd already had. We're going we're gonna to play that for you in just a moment. But Dan, we actually did hear back from a couple of listeners who are in five-year fixed PhD programs here in the U.S. Okay, well, do you want to tell us where some of these are and, and some of the comments? So we heard from Rebecca, who is a grad student at UCLA's Molecular Biology Interdepartmental Doctoral Program, and it's a five-year PhD program. Now, Rebecca admitted that she is starting this fall, so she doesn't have a lot of experience to share from being in the program. Could be terrible, could be great. We don't know yet. <laughs> it could be. Uh, but she did say that it... The five-year design definitely was a factor for her when choosing a program and deciding to accept their offer, which totally makes sense. I wonder if this is a way that programs can become competitive by helping students understand how to plan for their lives. Maybe I'm married. Maybe I want to have kids. Maybe I have, you know, I want to spend the next five years after this in Spain. Knowing when I'm going to finish would help me make those life decisions. So yeah, that's a great point, Dan. It, it could to, be a tiebreaker in a in a application process. Yeah, sure thing. Well, and she said that the the program explained it to all the students who were interviewing that about five or six years ago they redesigned the program to make it so that if you followed the structure and did everything you needed to do, you'd be done in five years. Now, if something goes wrong, you can extend by a semester or two. But it seemed like they highly discouraged this, and it's only for extenuating circumstances. So, so there is a way, you know, it's not a five years and you're out no matter what. It seems like there's a, a release valve if something goes wrong, but the program setup is that most people will, will be done. And she said part of the way that they shave off some of the time is limiting classes for being only during the first year. Um, and then, then I think this is important, Dan, having a lot of checkpoints throughout the five years to give frequent feedback and guidance to keep things moving along. Good foreshadowing, because we're going to talk a lot about that after we hear from Talia. I think that's one of the features that we heard again and again uh, is going to be important is those frequent check-ins. Also, Dan, I'd be remiss not to say Rebecca also mentioned that she's a fan of the podcast and said that Hello PhD has been a huge help for her over the past year and a half as she decided whether grad school was right for her through the application and interview process, and now she prepares to start her program. So that's awesome, Rebecca, and certainly best of luck, and please keep in touch and let us know how things are going. Yeah, and we actually reached out to uh, people in the UCLA program, so hopefully in the future we can talk to somebody who's administrating that, who made the decision to switch to that type of program be great to hear from them. Josh, we also heard from Sherry, who is in a five-year time-limited PhD program at the University of Colorado. It's a clinical and health sciences program, and so all of the students are former clinicians, which might contribute to the fact that they can finish on this time schedule. They already have a specific background, but they apparently take preliminary exams at the end of the second semester, and then qualifying exams occur before the end of the fifth semester, dissertations at 4.5 years on average, and no one has taken longer than five. So, um, she says she enjoys that model. She knows what the milestones are, uh, like when a first authorship is due, and whether she's progressing toward the degree, which I think it, it takes a lot of stress out of the, the process. You know I'm hitting these milestones. I know that I'm doing what I need to do to graduate. Yeah, and she, she went on to say that knowing that end date was quite motivating for her, and she said, I have little doubt that I will actually finish Goal setting is simplified. Dan, I know you mentioned that was a big source of stress for you was not even the stress of when am I going to finish, but am I even going to? Does this end? Yeah. Will, will it go on for another five years and then I just don't get the degree? That was, that was always an option and always a, a fear that I had. So sounds like a program like this would have been better for me to at least be able to 
I guess take care of my mental health in such a way to know that the end was in sight and then I could have done it. Yeah. And so Sherry says, I'm at the end of my second year and now attend conferences with the goal of informally interviewing for postdoc positions. I'm meeting potential new PIs and setting a plan for applying for postdoc funding as needed. I find that the time limit helps me plan for success in the next step of my career. Pretty cool. Now we just push the uncertainty to your postdoc, which I'm sure we'll get into in <laughs> the time conversation. Postdoc, right? <laughs> yeah, next uh, week on the show. But Dan, I got to I got to tell you, I am I am just over the moon to find out that just in our little po- our little Hello PhD audience, there are two listeners who are in these types of programs here in the U.S. Yeah, and as you travel on conferences, it may be fun to find these people. I mean, I, I assume you'll attend conferences where UCLA and University of Colorado people will be. Would love it if you'd follow up and find out what they say. Well, you know why I'm kicking myself, Dan. Why are you kicking yourself? Because I was just at UCLA. Oh, that's right. A couple months ago. I just remember the listener beer. I know. If I had known about this, you you can bet that I would have been looking up these people. You absolutely would have. Well, Josh, that takes us to our interview with Talia. Everybody will remember in episode 111 on citizen science, we talked to Talia about her work on a citizen science project studying echidnas in Australia. But I took that time to also ask her about what graduate school was like in Australia, because we had heard rumors that things were very different in terms of funding and in terms of timeframes. And so let's listen to what she had to say, and then we'll come back and talk about whether we think those strategies could work around the world. You know, we just gave some examples of two specific programs here in the United States with a time-limited PhD. But one of the things we found out from Talia was... Here's a whole country whose system is built around... A continent, technically. A A whole continent. You know, where the entire system in Australia is built around this fixed-length PhD of not five years, Dan. Dun-dun-dun. But three years. Okay, well, let's listen and and find out what is possible someday in the future, Josh. Well, let me me switch gears briefly because I would be remiss if I didn't ask you (laughs) about the life of a graduate student in Australia. We mm-hmm. have heard that it is very different from the United States. So tell, yeah. us, tell us what the process is it like. It is a very different process. Um, and listening to Hello PhD has given me such great is insights. glad I'm not over there. Into, <laughs> into the US system because I had no idea how it worked over, over here. Um, so that's been really cool to compare the two. And, you know, if I want to come and do a postdoc over here, I have a bit more insight into how this sort of system works, which yeah. has been super, super helpful for me. Um, so we... We have it so after, straight after high school, you um, usually do an undergraduate degree. Um, Four years? Three years. Three years. Yeah, so three years undergraduate degree. Uh, and, you know, then you, you specialize in particular areas. So you do usually two majors um, in, you know, genetics or zoology or environmental biology or physics, chemistry, all of those sorts of things. So you sort of start to pick your path in undergrads. You start with generalist subjects and you sort of get more specific throughout the three years. Uh, After that, we do what's called an honours year. Um, And so that's like one year, or not even one year, like nine months project where this is really the first time you're introduced to a lab lab environment. So we, during undergrad, we do, you know, the normal lectures, tutes, practicals, um, like lab-based um, projects, but they're not actually in a physical lab. Right, you know the results before you get started. Exactly, yeah, yeah they're all very pre-planned. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, honours degrees um, is where you actually, you sort of join a lab, um, sort of like a mini master's, but you don't have any coursework anymore. And everybody does one or not everybody? No, so it's a, it's, a, it's a choice. So if you want to go on for further research, um, you do you do your honours. So you can stop after an undergraduate degree if you want. Um, there are limited jobs, though, if you just stop at an undergraduate degree, okay. um, like a Bachelor of Science. So most... 
people, if they want to continue with research or even just getting an industry job, would go on to do an honours. And, and is the honours year just like being in university where you're paying to be there or is it like a job where they're paying you to be there? No, honours is still your paying. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you're still paying the university fees. Although we have a great system in Australia where we've got this thing called a hex debt where you don't actually pay anything up front um, for any sort of university degree at all. Um, wow. And it's not until you start earning over 55 grand a year, I think, as a job, and it starts to come out of your tax um, for you to oh, pay back. Wild. So some people never pay back their hex debts. If they, yeah, if you they, never find work that, yeah, that if pays they, more. If they never hit that or if they you know don't work for that, like long of a time sort of thing so um it's a yeah great system in terms of money we never have to fork out fees for university ever which is amazing unless you're an international student (laughs) then it's different um so yeah during your honors year you're basically given a project that you're in charge of so sort of like a very short phd you know you're you um, do a literature review, um, you think of a hypothesis, you plan your experiments, and then you spend that rest of the nine months doing... But time box to nine months is not yes. this, oh, we could be here eight exactly. years or not. Yeah. yeah, so, and essentially, it's not so much important about the results that you get if you make you know, a significant impact in science. It's more about learning the process of how science works to begin with. Uh, yeah, you've got that finite point of time. And yeah, you don't have to um, necessarily get any significant results, but you do write a mini thesis at the end. And it's more about the process of learning how to do science, what science is really about, the scientific process, being able to think of an experiment, run an experiment, learn the techniques of whatever field that you're in um, and finish at that point. So that's graded. But everybody tends to finish and do well. and Yeah, yeah. It's a, they're, they're, they're a finite project that is accomplishable so when do you hit the brick wall of real science (laughs) where things don't work well things don't always work in honors either and I think that's an important process of learning about the scientific method is that you know you could be troubleshooting for that entire nine months and not actually get any significant results but you're still allowed to finish so I see yeah so as long as you write up about your experiments and you you go through the well why didn't this work or what experiments would you do next to make it work and those sorts of discussion points in your in your thesis so as long as you're still thinking like a scientist you don't have to have you know presented anything mind-blowingly so with that honors year under your belt does everybody go on to do more advanced or can you can you take that honors year and go find a job yeah absolutely you can finish honors and because a lot of it's a learning experience and people realize oh research really isn't I don't like this yeah yeah so having that extra degree under your belt gives you better job prospects um, and you do start to sort of learn about more industry jobs well we're trying to at least um, at our university I'm involved in a student-run club where we actually try to give undergraduate students and postgraduate students more insights into the industry world because that's a growing thing you know there's not that many research jobs out there anymore so industry is an interesting avenue to take instead um so yeah so you can stop at the honors um and get a job um you can get a like a research assistant or technical assistant job if you still sort of like the lab environment but you just don't want to be doing actual you know hardcore research or you can go and do something completely different um and again it's a funnel system so not 
you know, you don't get that many students then going on to a PhD. Right. So you go from like, you know, thousands of people doing an undergrad to probably hundreds of people doing a, um, a honours and then maybe tens of people doing a PhD. So it's okay. definitely a fun and system. And that's the path you took. You decided yes. more of this, please. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I've always been interested in learning just finding out new things. I think discovering things is super exciting. Um, I did my honours in an ancient DNA lab, which is really cool. So basically taking DNA from fossils um, of a mammal that was extinct and figuring out how that's related to its living relatives. So oh, that, is amazing. that was a cool process and I was opened up to the world of bioinformatics there as well because I had no idea what bioinformatics was. I was not a computer person at all. I didn't know what coding was. It terrified me. Um, so that was an awesome learning experience too. But I've always had that like hardcore passion for conservation and so wanting to be able to make a difference and make sure that things don't go extinct rather than studying things Absolutely. that were already extinct yeah. um, and monotremes are just the most like ridiculous and amazing animals that I couldn't pass up the opportunity to work with them as well. So how long is a PhD? Uh, it's only it starts off as only being three years. <laughs> it's ominous. <laughs> it's short time. <laughs> or eternity. But, <laughs> but you do, so that's what you're funded for initially. You get um, government or university funding usually. There's sort of two, two normal streams. Um, and depending on what your grades are at the end of your honours is sort of depicted by which sort of scholarship that you get, if you get one. a lot Most, most honours students do. There are a few that don't, um, but most people would get a scholarship, um, which is to cover like all university fees you don't pay anything for university fees and you get a stipend for living expenses great um, and it's livable you can live on that stipend it depends on where you're living so adelaide is a very cheap and livable city um okay. so absolutely you can live off of that and live out of home so you can rent an apartment in the city um and share with a couple of people and it's it's you know it's not great but like manageable it's, yeah it's it's livable but um, somewhere like sydney maybe not exactly sydney and melbourne they're much larger cities and so you sort of you probably if you have to live out of home you're probably still living like at least an hour outside of the city and have to come in and out sort of thing um but it's T take me back to it starts out as three years yeah. <laughs> starts out as three years um but after three years you can get a six months extension for your scholarship um but your actual phd from the university you're allowed to go for four years and then again you can also get an extension for that if you want to most people try to finish between the three and a half four years because you obviously don't want to be living without any money and trying to finish up a phd so that's that's always hard um, and if you can finish before the three and a half years like you're golden that's that's the best outcome finishing means publishing what does finishing mean uh, there's different uh, different things for different universities with our university you can do pretty much any form of thesis you can do just a completely unpublished thesis that's just all you know your own written chapters and you don't have any plan for publishing you can do a full published thesis which is either you've got the chapters published already or they're in manuscript form and you're planning on publishing them or you can do a mix of two so you can have a couple of chapters that are published and a couple of chapters that are just written up as chapters so it's very fle flexible here and there's no sort of minimum maximum how many Publish, publications, chapters. I think if you wanted a full publication one, you have to have at least three that are either manuscript ready or already published. But um, it's pretty, it's pretty manageable. And you know, if you have a terrible, terrible experience as a PhD, you, you're not going to be stuck there forever. You don't have a high attrition rate where people drop out partway through because they can't see the end. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good thing about the Australian system is that there is kind of a finite end. You're at least for funding 
reason so that <laughs> there's a hard stop in the yeah, end, right? like you've got yeah. motivation to finish sort sure. of thing um so you know there are people that i know that have taken um six years or nine years of till they finish their phd a lot of the time they've gotten jobs and have sort of done it part-time or have done a lot of teaching instead of doing so much of their phd so they've just sort of extended it forever but there is and they're, they're quite good in australia at keeping track of how you're going so the university has systems in place where at a six-month mark you have like a meeting with your supervisors and your and your panel or the uh, the committee we would call yeah 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 and people in charge of the postgrads um you also sit down and make sure everyone's like going along at the six month mark and then the 12 month mark and then another 12 months after that and you've got and that's baked in or the student has to organize it no that's like you get a notification being like you have oh, to get right? this done by this date Great idea. and so it's Great idea. it's a part of your phd that you have to do all of those things and everyone in the university is quite on board with that system as well so yeah, sometimes it's just a formality. Like you meet up with them, you have a casual chat, being like, "Yep, all everything's good. Tick the boxes, done." Um, right, but, but you were forced to be there and have the conversation. Exactly. I think in the United States, a lot of students get stuck in the. I will wait until I've got a little bit more to show I before know. I schedule it, yeah. but then it never happens. Yeah, absolutely. Until year four and it's a little late. Yeah, and at our university, um, we've got this system where the postgraduate coordinator, um, they will be there in that meeting and they'll have a part where the student will leave and have they'll have a conversation with the supervisors and then the supervisor will leave and they'll have a conversation with the student to make sure that if there is anything going wrong that you can trust that you can talk to these people and, and bring up any concerns if that's happening which I think is a great process as well. That's amazing, yeah. There are some, there are some shitty supervisors out there. There, there are, yeah, and, and there are some safety nets in place for when that happens. It's not Absolutely. if it happens, it's yeah. when it happens. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Um, anything else about Australian PhDs and why we all wish we were in Australia? <laughs> yeah, come to Australia. Just, <laughs> yeah, just come to your PhD here. Yeah, it would be fantastic. Um, yeah, I don't know. Apart from, yeah, the, I, I can't believe how long your PhDs go for. I can't it's, either. It's I mad. Either. Like, you, you, you're Eight, so old by the time yeah. that you... <laughs> it's, it's, a real, it's, it's a real... It's an issue. All right, Dan. That was, uh, that was fascinating. I love, I love hearing from Talia, by the way. Yeah, it was, it was a great conversation. And I picked out a couple of themes in there that some of them knocked my socks off. And I wanted to get your impression as somebody who is in the business of minting graduate students, uh, the first thing that stood out to me is what on earth would would it be like to have publicly funded or, or a university system that was paid for with no debt until you were able to pay it back, is, which is what she described. How would that change graduate student life? Yeah, that's fundamentally different. Or, you know, I'm just thinking my wife, who's a public school teacher, you know, or if you're in a profession where you, you don't ever reach that fifty-five thousand um, dollar threshold, which is really a lot of you know public servants or uh, social workers or helper type careers, even police officers. How that might even encourage you to pursue these really important jobs that don't pay as well, uh, where you don't have the added burden of having to pay for schooling. Yeah, we are not economists. Clearly, we're not a lot of things. Clearly. But uh, I looked up a little bit about the way that these hex loans work or help loans. So it's spelled H-E-C-S or H-E-L-P. And basically the way it works is there's a a graduated payback scale where if you make between, let's see, if you make below $51,957 in 2018, then you don't pay anything back. If you make between $86,856 and $91,425, you pay back 6.5% 
of your help repayment income. So there's this graduated scale that that automatically when you submit your taxes at the end of the year, this money comes out of your out of your income. And it's a percentage of your income based on your income. I imagine up to the amount that your education costs. Maybe that's true. I didn't quite understand what the percentage meant, but um yeah, there, there's there's a, a graduated scale based on how much you make. Maybe it's a percentage of your income. Maybe it's how much debt you incurred. I don't know how they keep track of that, though. Really interesting way of doing things. I'd be interested to know what the, the actual cost of education is there compared to here in the States where, I mean, certainly the cost has skyrocketed um, over you're the last number of years. You're paying back to your 150 oh, years old. But I think this could enable people who maybe take a job early because they need to start paying down these loans or maybe it would affect things in the other direction where people continue on through school because they don't want to start paying back their student loans. I think it would just change the calculus. People would be able to pursue the things that made them passionate. Well, you know, Dan, one thing I always think about, and I talk to students about this when they, they like science as a high schooler or as an undergrad, considering programs like uh, health careers, you know, like medical school, nursing school, dental school. I mean, these are all programs you pay quite a bit of money to do. You go into pretty significant debt, at least in our country, to become a, a medical worker. And you contrast that to PhD training in the sciences where, you know, most science-based programs here actually cover your tuition and pay you a salary while you're there. So it's very, very possible to get that PhD degree, make a fairly okay salary for a graduate student, and then come out the other side with your degree and no additional school debt. Yeah, I, I think it'd be a game changer. I don't know how it would ever get done, um, but I thought it was interesting to, to put out there for all of us to be thinking about. How do we change the economics of going to going to school? Well, I thought this, uh, this idea of this honors year that seemed to be an optional stepping stone between undergraduate for individuals who are interested in science and, can, and exploring research as a career. Can I tell you what I thought about it at oh, first? Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I, I heard that and I was like, well, isn't that what undergrad is for? You do research as an undergrad, right? But then my, my second thought was, oh, yeah, you should probably not be taking classes, not be living in your dorm room, doing actual science for a little while, which is exactly what my undergrad advisor told me. He said, take a year off, stay here, work in my lab for a year, and then apply. And I said, no, I got to get out of here. I need to go be a scientist. And it was a mistake. I should have stayed. And then I think I would have learned something about myself and about what science is like to do it uh, day to day. And I may have made different choices. Yeah, I think we both went straight from undergrad. And I agree, Dan, I had the, a similar experience. It was a bit of a shock to my system transitioning from my undergrad research experience to the full-time PhD experience at an R1 institution. And I was, I was actually telling a student this today. You know, I had so much fun doing research as an undergrad in that environment at a small liberal arts school and then suddenly when I'm a rotation student in this lab at an R1 institution, there's postdocs and there's lab technicians and just the, the pace and the seriousness in that lab was so different than what I was accustomed to. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it, but research just seemed so much less fun than I had doing it in undergrad. And I really had a crisis where I thought, what am I, is this really where I want to be? What am I doing here? And so I think that transition would have been much smoother for me if I would have had the time to do this full-time research somewhere else, not as an undergraduate, before making the leap. And it made me think, Dan, we were talking about this a little before we started recording. You know, one of my 
real jobs is to to direct this post-baccalaureate program for students who want to go on two PhD programs. And so they spend a year building skills on scientific communication and reading papers um, and also working full-time in the lab for a year, very similar to this um, this honors year that, that Talia talked about. But the whole goal of this post-baccalaureate year in our program is these are students who want to transition and move on to PhD training. So everything that they do during that year is with the purpose of helping them grow as independent scientists, learn what it's like to carry on a project full time. So the feedback we've gotten over the last 10 years is these students have been really successful, partly because when they get to grad school, they're not surprised. They know what to expect and they've built skills specifically to help them succeed in a PhD program. I mean, it's akin to training wheels, which will keep you upright and and you'll be able to learn to balance as opposed to just putting the kid on the bike and letting them scrape their knees, right? We we throw people into this new culture, this new world of graduate school research, and we shouldn't be surprised when people bloody themselves a little bit. So Dan, I mean, the thing that jumps out at, at me when I learned about this and heard Tali's interview is, you know, I wanted to do five years and thought that was which radical. was aggressive. <laughs> and now. Here's People's whole, minds were exploding when you said five years. Here's a continent of people getting their PhD in three years. So, so I mean, how does that happen? Is this like a PhD light or, or what's going on here? No. In, in fact, I don't think it is a PhD light. We talked to uh, some of our Patreon friends in Slack who are in Australia. And, and one of the people, Arlen, told us about her experience as a graduate student in Australia. She said that in some countries, like the United States, you start your PhD before you actually have a project. And then you take your first year or first two years to come up with a project. I think that's how you and I did it, right? You do rotations for one year, then you join a lab and you pick a project in that process. Yeah. And you know, it could be for a lot of programs, it's not until maybe your third year, you have this topic approval meeting where officially your committee approves the topic you will do for your thesis. Now, I know most people are probably working on some semblance of the precursor to that project, but, but you're right. I mean, at least a year goes by. Right, before at least you. a year, probably two, and so so there's two of our years taken up. Um, Arlen says that in Australia, the PhD application is a project idea and proposal. So within a year, you have completed a full literature review, designed the specifics of your project at all stages, and then you provide a report and present your project to a panel, which is their confirmation of candidature. Um, you have to get ethical approval and things like that, but. You have to show that your project is needed, that it's feasible, that you have the skill to carry it out, that it would benefit the world basically by doing it. Um, And then you have two years to carry out the project and write it up. So I think what they're doing is front-loading some of the wandering around, trying out different labs. Do I want to research this or do I want to research this? Taking a bunch of classes. It's kind of a lot of it's done up front. You spend a year doing your, your literature search, your background, and your design. And once your design gets approved, then you have this roadmap for how to get done. You seem scared. No, I think, I think that's great. Do you think it would work? I mean, it, clearly it is working. So do you think it would have worked for us? You know, I do think so. I can remember my own program. And, you know, not all programs work this way. But, but in my, my PhD program, in our second year, at the end of our second year, we had this um, really extensive candidacy exam or, or prelim exam where we had to prepare two topics, um, two specific AIMS pages, not related to our actual research. And then we had to, you know, I remember on the day the prelim period started, they would give us one envelope that was one of the two 
topics we had prepared in the semester before. And the other was $100,000. <laughs> and you always chose incorrectly. Uh, but anyway, the topic you got, you then got six weeks to write a full grant proposal on this topic. Again, not a topic that's related to your research. So proof that it can be done in six weeks. Well, yeah, well, that's Which true. is interesting. And, and you know, and, and since this was an, as an exam, was an exam, they were very strict about no, like getting no assistance. So like this was really as a second year grad student, kind of on your own. And you know, first of all, I can remember taking that six weeks away from lab and research progress. But the thing I really remember is, you know, this was a high stakes exam. So if you fail this exam twice, you're out of the program, right? And if you failed it once, you had to do the whole thing again. So the stakes were very high to do the whole well. thing with a different topic. So it completely from start from the beginning. Yeah. So, so what I remember was that I poured into the literature to understand this new topic, right? That was not my research topic. And by the time I finished the six weeks and I turned it in, I was so knowledgeable about all the background reading of this topic that I wrote my prelim on, but I was also so burned out that, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but not really because so much time has passed. I don't think I ever knew the background literature of my own actual graduate project as well as I knew the background literature of that prelim topic because I think at that point I was so burned out. I just didn't feel I was just ready to start doing research again. And I think what a waste how much better off I would have been and probably my PI if I would have been able to put that same level of effort into the actual project that I would have been working on as a graduate student. What if you had stepped out of lab for 6 weeks and figured out how to finish your actual PhD. What yeah. would that have looked like? Instead of hitting pause, right, it would have actually probably accelerated uh, my time to finishing because I would have been so focused and knowledgeable starting back. So I can definitely see uh, the benefits of this type of system that, you know, that Arlen and, and Tali were talking about. And Dan, one thing that jumped out at me was, and I think we've talked about this, we talked about this last week, was a lot of our programs here in the States, our PhD programs, tend to have a requirement, a publication requirement for graduation. And it sounded like from what, what Talia said, that in these Australian programs, uh, many students do publish, but publication is not necessarily the gatekeeper for letting you out with your PhD. And, and that's, a, I mean, that's a key difference. Right, because publishing schedules are not easy, and, and we talked about people getting scooped. I think there's a lot we we want to talk about, Josh, in terms of what does it mean to get a PhD. And I think we're going to have to come back to it because right now the standard is publish, at least here in the United States. And I think what we're, what we're publicly talking about here is that's probably not the only or best measure of whether you have the skills to be a scientist, but we got to step back even from that. What does it mean to be a scientist and have a PhD? Right, absolutely. And and, you know, we received a lot of feedback this week from individuals who were saying pretty much the same thing. And that was sort of reiterating one thing we said on the show a lot of times, that you gain a lot of skills in PhD programs, not just hard technical skills, but all these soft skills. And if we're saying that you gain skills, uh, skills can be measured. And so is there a way to actually measure the gaining of skills that we or that we would want graduate students to have in a PhD program that might be a better indicator for a training outcome than just, oh, you got this paper published. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to spend some time on that. So if you have ideas about that, please write to us, podcast at hellaphd.com. That one stirs up a lot of feedback and it's one that we're going to have to revisit. Dan, so I think a great example of this was some feedback we got from uh, listener Josh, not me, but different Josh. 
You left a comment on the website. <laughs> I didn't even <laughs> nice know we work. had a website. Dan. I know. Every week I tell you. <laughs> we can leave comments on the website? It's a real power that we have. Uh, you made Dan's day, Josh, for doing that. So thank you. All right. So what Josh said was, while listening to the episode, I was reminded of a pedagogy workshop I attended at my university that suggested some alternatives to the traditional cumulative final exam for a class. The questions launched in this workshop were, what is the purpose of a final? What do we expect a final to measure or show? And do traditional finals actually accomplish what we want them to accomplish? You could turn this on the PhD process quite easily and frame in terms of backward design. What are the goals of a PhD? How do you know if you've achieved those goals? How do you measure achievement or progress? How do you design the instruction and activities to achieve the goals? I think it is absolutely conceivable to have a PhD take a fixed amount of time, but you first need professors and departments to figure out answers to some of the above questions. Too often, I think advisors and instructors just fall back on the way they learn things and continue using the same broken methods. By the way, and I thought this was, uh, so this was exactly what we were talking about. So I thought the way he concluded this was really interesting. So Josh went on, by the way, I really like the comparison to medical school, but your conclusion that it's too different than PhD doesn't seem fair. What has been brought up time and again on your show is that a PhD teaches you a multitude of hard and soft skills. Skills can be measured and evaluated. In fact, I think the most important difference between the two types of programs is that the process to become an MD is very good at measuring skills, which is a necessity due to the high stakes involved. So I think he's totally right there. And that got me thinking a lot, his his comment, that I think I have defaulted to this you know, this probably very common academic mindset, which is programs like medical school, dental school, pharmacy school, which are all time length, time fixed length programs, um, that those are somehow fundamentally different than a PhD program. And I think what I would have said before Josh pushed me on this a little bit is that, well, these other health programs, uh, you know, these are vocational type programs that teach skills and a PhD program, you know, the goal of that, it teaches you how to think. Uh, but you know, I mean, that's really that's really a lot of hubris, Dan. <laughs> like to sit here and say, no one else knows how to think <laughs> but us. Uh, well, a PhD program. I mean, a doctor. Sure, you may learn to do surgery on someone's heart while it's beating, but <laughs> do you know how to think about it? I think they stop the heart sometimes <laughs> to do the surgery, and then uh, some bypass surgery. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Um, See, it's so easy. I don't. I don't know, Dan. I realized like that's some pretty high level ivory tower bullshit that we have. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and I think that's part of the, I can't help but wonder if part of the pushback you get when you even suggest that a PhD program have this similar trait to many other programs in having some fixed end date is there's a little piece of those of us who have gone through it that holds on to this badge of honor that I went through this program and it wasn't over until the discoveries told me it was over. What or, you're describing is hazing. <laughs> it's really, that's what fraternities do, not what ivory towers should Yeah, do. is there a real viable practical reason why we have to do it that way? Some training purpose, right? Um, but but I thought the point was was very well made that, that we just talked about and that Josh mentioned. What are the skills needed? What what are we trying to accomplish in a PhD program? And I think you're right, Dan. That is a much bigger We're going to spend time on it, and, and we're going to have some maybe activities that our listeners can do uh, to send us some of their thoughts. We'll keep you posted on that. On the on the three years, I just wanted to finish up with a couple of thoughts, Josh. Do you believe that mental health will be better with a fixed-term PhD? Do you think that it's better in Australia? I think it would be a fascinating research question. You know, we have this very well-documented mental health crisis in our American STEM PhD programs. And, 
you know, we have had our experiences and we had a number of people over the last couple of weeks mention the anxiety that that uncertainty gave to them during their training. It would be really fascinating to, to see if you have those same levels of, of anxiety with students in these more time-fixed programs in a three-year program, or even, Dan, now we have these five-year programs. And I'm certain that that is not the only contributing factor. I think there's so many so many issues and challenges that graduate students face. You know, Dan, I can't help but wonder if it's not necessarily just the time, fi- the, the fixed length time frame of these programs. But the other thing we keep hearing time and time again from Talia and from Arlen and from uh, the folks who wrote to us from these fixed length PhD programs in the States is they don't just chop it off at the end, but they institute all of these milestones, all these stepping stones, all these checkpoints for graduate students. So So it's really, yeah, it's almost impossible to get lost and to spin your wheels. That's so prevalent in our current typical structure of PhD programs in the States. Can I, can I quote, can I, this is a quote that I want everybody to get tattooed on their arms because, or stitched into your cross stitch pattern. Give it to me. This is my belief. You can tell me if it's wrong. Results don't create committee meetings, which is what we all believe. Committee meetings create results. We always sit and wonder like, oh, if I just had a few more experiments, then I should schedule my committee meeting. And you never get the experiments done because you don't have the committee meeting. The moment it's scheduled, you will go do work. I promise. No, you're absolutely right, Dan. I mean, we, we talked about, I like to call it the lab meeting phenomenon. You know, That's right. I could remember how productive I was the week leading up to lab meeting and maybe how unproductive I was the week after lab meeting when I didn't have to go again for a month. Because, you know, if, if your end date is amorphous, you know, what's really the motivation to do that PCR today versus putting it off till tomorrow? Yeah. But man, if you've got that committee meeting coming up and that deadline, I mean, it's just human nature at that it point. It is absolutely human nature. And I believe this is, this is one of the things that without an act of Congress, without totally changing the way your program works, any administrator could institute a rule that says, I'm scheduling each student's meeting. I'm going to put it on the Google Calendar. I don't care where you put it. Somebody please try this. Put the student meetings on a calendar and make it a requirement and see if graduation doesn't happen faster as a result. You hear that, program administrators and faculty? It's my challenge. If you are in a position to make change in your department, institute mandatory committee meetings for all of your students every six months. Do you think anybody would object to this? Do you think anybody would say, that's a terrible idea, mandatory committee meetings? I could potentially, this is the only thing I can imagine, Dan, that potentially faculty in a department, especially a larger department, saying, well, we just have too many grad students. That's too many meetings that I would have to go to. Then you have too many grad students. That's what I would say. Then yeah. you then you don't have the resources available for the proper care and feeding of your graduate students. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> one way of phrasing that. <laughs> I'm the, the grad student social services, and I'm going to come and extract those grad That's students, right. uh, take them to a better home uh, at UCLA or, <laughs> yeah. or at a different I would, program. I would love to, to see research on that, or I would love to see somebody just go institute it to find out whether that simple change could make, you know, instead of trying to fix the end time, which is hard, instead of trying to pay for undergraduate uh, education through some sort of payback tax system, which is hard, just put a thing on a calendar and tell me if it works. You're absolutely right, Dan. And, and that's really worth saying explicitly that, you know, our talking about this of potentially making a big change, a fundamental change to the way we do PhD training in the U.S., it really has nothing to do with us caring if a graduate program takes 
six years or five years or three years. What we care about is grad students are stressed and grad students are spinning their wheels and they're not they're not seeing their own worth and their own value and they're becoming demotivated. That's the issue. And that's what we want to address here. Yeah, put those milestones on a chart and and start moving toward them. Um, I was really interested in the, the mentor feedback section that the student leaves the room while the committee talks, which I think happens in every committee meeting, at least everyone I've been in, mm-hmm. and then you get called back in. But then there's also the situation where the mentor leaves and the student talks to the other committee members. I don't know how often that happens. I've, he- I've heard of that happening in certain departments. And I think that's a great, a great idea. You know, one, one caveat, Dan, while the intention of that is certainly great, you know, giving a student the opportunity to speak freely about how things are going without their PI there, Oftentimes, a situation, if you think about your own committee, Dan, sure, when my PI is not there, but the other folks on my committee, you know, one's like the department chair, one's like the good friend of my PI, one's the other person yeah, down the hall. you wouldn't feel at liberty to discuss problems you were having. Not necessarily. I think there's still a little bit of a power dynamic in these relationships um, among different people, but I think, I think it's a great start. Fair. Right? That's fair. Yeah, so Dan, we, you know, we got a lot of feedback from folks who were very positive about the idea of a, of a change like this. Everybody agreed. I filtered the people that didn't agree. <laughs> you didn't let that get through to me. Anything about camping or people that disagree <laughs> with me gets sent to spam. Uh, but but we, you know, we did get some great feedback from some friends of the show, from our friend Adrian on Twitter and our, our friend Jada, who's, who's one of our Patreon patrons on the Slack channel, who agreed with some of the sentiments of, of wanting checkpoints and caring about student mental health, but, but that maybe the fixed-length PhD wasn't the way to go. Yeah, I think the concern was that it was going to, and this is what I predicted, is going to let people slip through the cracks, get a degree that maybe weren't ready. And the faculty member uh, told a story about actually serving on a committee and uh, having a student come through with a committee meeting. The student didn't really understand the background of the subject that she was studying when this faculty member pressed her on what she was going to do when the experiments didn't work out. What was her backup plan? The student said, I don't know. So the committee actually failed her for that for that aspect of her, I don't know, it was a comprehensive exam or something else. But anyway, they, they said, do it over, come back and have answers to these questions. The student came back and didn't, hadn't read the background, couldn't answer the background questions again. Um, when this faculty member asked, what are you going to do if the experiments don't work out? The student said, why do you keep asking me this? And two of the committee members passed the student and the person who wrote to us didn't. And so the concern that this person raised was, what happens in a fixed five-year PhD program if now this person, who clearly isn't demonstrating what we talked about, the skills that represent, I understand how science works and I am being trained as a scientist, but still can just wait long enough, slip through the cracks and get a degree. And what does that do to the degree? Hey, Dan, well, I got something to say to you. What happens to that student in their current program, which is not a fixed-length PhD? And you know, I think we probably have all you know known students like this or even been those students where you know maybe it's not for you you know maybe i mean you do slip through the cracks and five years goes by six years goes by seven years goes by and then a lot of times the end of that the end game is you end up getting the phd by default just through <laughs> you were, you've been there for but you did it in nine years rather than five years yeah and so i mean i mean the situation being described is happening in, it's happening now. It in is. A, with our current system. And you might argue, I might argue, that in a system, fixed, fixed length or not, with these mandatory checkpoints every six months, where there, there's data points 
multiple data points over a period of time where no progress is really being made, then I, I think too often what is being conflated is, well, if we somehow if we somehow get rid of the open-endedness of these programs, we're somehow also getting rid of rigor and standards. And that's not at all what we're saying. I mean, we talked about the comparison to medical school. I mean, it's a fixed year program, but if you fail all your exams, you're not going to finish with an MD, right? So I think to a certain degree, the endpoint, whether it's fixed or not fixed, is inconsequential. It's not material to, to the discussion. Yeah, I mean, does that make sense? It does. It does. And and I think it's just one more reason that we're going to have to have this conversation about what does a PhD mean? And are there better ways to measure it than the ways we've been measuring it? And And so our friend Adrian, you know, he had a lot to say on the topic. And and, you know, I know Adrian shares our passion for, for wanting to improve training and have it be um, as impactful on trainees as possible. And, and one concern he had, um, which is really valid, is, is sometimes as a student, as a trainee, you know, maybe you don't feel ready or, at five years. Maybe you don't feel sufficiently ready to or make that next step. Or your advisor notices maybe you're not ready. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and maybe it's based on, you know, hey, what you want to do, I think you can get there, but I don't think you're quite there right now but with another year you know maybe you can get there um and i I guess what i would say to that is that could be true uh, for students absolutely and i think that was true for adrian he was talking about his personal experience and you know i love sort of sort of what the australian system has too and, and was mentioned by one of the u.s programs is options do exist to extend that time if it needs to be for some, you know, situational reason, or if you just feel like you need it to continue on, like you just maybe getting that last paper out is important for your career goals and you want to stay and do that. And there are mechanisms in place to do that. But what doesn't happen is, you know, maybe I want to go out and become a science writer or a science policy expert or go on to a policy fellowship or, or who knows what. And another year in the lab, year six in the lab is not going to make me more quote unquote ready for that career. Right. And so what is being gained by anyone <laughs> for me having my degree held hostage from me for this extra year until some publication comes out that's really not even that helpful for me and my CV. You got to wait another year to repay your student loans. <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's good. <laughs> yeah, there I you think. go. Is that how that works? Uh, maybe so. But anyway, I really appreciated all the feedback we got from, from everyone this week. That was so fun and, and really has focused, uh, focused us, Dan, on wanting to in the next over the next few months, really trying to explore this fundamental question of what is a PhD and what is PhD training all about in the first place? Yeah, it's it's a big question and I think one that we will crowdsource the answer to. So look out for some communications where we ask you to submit your feedback. And do you know what we will say when we find that PhD and what it's all about? I don't know. We will say, hello. Oh, wow. Good branding insert. PhD. (laughs) Okay. Well, if you have a question or a topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd or leave us a message on the Facebook page. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback and it helps listeners find the show. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website and click the become a patron button or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We'd appreciate the beer money and thank you for the ongoing support from our patrons. All right, Dan, this was a fun show. I still need to catch up on some sleep from my camping escapades. I feel great. (laughs) I feel great. (laughs) You look so well rested. 
I came out and ate a hot dog and went back home. Oh, man. My bed felt so good on that night. I believe you. Two greatest... Uh, this is the last thing. Two greatest inventions of mankind. Air conditioning has to be one of them. Air conditioning and in-air Wi-Fi. In-air? On the plane. Oh, oh on the plane. It's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the... Where else is it going to be? It's not on the tubes anymore. It's not on the tubes. That's true. All right, Dan. I'll catch you next time. We'll see you then. Okay.